0: The National Archives podcast series, Spies Like Us, The Secret Life of Ernest Oldham, presented by Nick Barrett. This talk was recorded on the 13th of February 2014 at the National Archives, Q. I've spent the last, what, ten years or so digging into everyone's backgrounds, celebrities, members of the public. It's great when you unearth a really good mystery. We all love mystery stories. Uh, the best that I could come up with until recently was something that my uncle on my dad's side used to tell a story about. An unsolved event in his childhood. He can't have been more than about seven years old. We're talking 1930s. My father was seriously ill in hospital with scarlet fever. And the family would troop down to the hospital every morning to check the bills of mortality to see whether he'd made it through the night. Well, obviously he did, because I'm still here. But one morning, a phone call came through. And his parents, my grandparents, rushed off without warning, leaving my uncle to go down on his own to the hospital and see whether his brother had survived. This for him was a really big moment, a rite of passage into adulthood, even though he was only about seven years old. It was clearly a different, more innocent age back then. And he came back full of pride, waiting to part the news that his brother was still alive to his parents, who eventually came back rather flustered and refused to say where they'd been. And that was it. That was the mystery. Nothing grand at all. But it puzzled him for a very long time, and he never could get to the bottom of it. Luckily, here at the National Archives, we have far better stories than that to tell you about. And the one I want to talk about today relates to espionage. In particular, the records in series KV2. They're basically the personal files created by Military Intelligence Section 5, which you would know today as MI5. And they've got some amazing stories from the First World War period onwards when the military services and eventually the entire security services were increasingly concerned about infiltration in key institutions, particularly the Foreign Office, and the possible loss of information into foreign or potentially enemy hands. So we have a whole range of files. Some of them are just monitoring activities. Some of them have identified key figures based on Soviets, defectors who started talking about what activities they'd been doing. Before I continue though, I want to say a few words of thanks to a couple of people who are here today who have introduced me to Ernest Holloway Oldham. And they are Anthony Stanforth, who first suggested that this might be an interesting case file to have a look at, and I'll come on to the reasons why a bit later. And more recently, Edward Kershaw. He's very kindly shared his research time and his notes with me, which has helped make this talk possible. They probably know far more about Ernest Holloway-Eldham than I could possibly do, but we are trying to share and pool our resources in good intelligence fashion. I want to take you back a little bit, first of all, to give you some background into what this chat was like. Up until the start of the First World War, he had a pretty ordinary, everyday background, born 10th of September, 1894. And we've got a summary here from his intelligence file, which describes his... Place of birth, the fact that he came from a family of teachers. He had two sisters, Marjorie and Kathleen. And the family eventually moved into 135 Berry Street in Edmonton, North London. He received his education nearby in a Tottenham County School and then took the decision to try and apply to get into the civil service. And according to his civil service uh, career notes. He was appointed to the Board of Education 11th of December 1913, having passed the civil service exams the previous month. These were competitive entrance exams where you were tested against a range of different activities to show your suitability. So this was quite a high-quality field. He got in and then he moved to the Board of Trade on the 1st of January 1914 before eventually heading to the Foreign Office on the 1st of April, 1914. He ended up in the Chief Clerk's Department. And that's what his official record says. But already, something doesn't quite ring true. Because when you look at those examination papers, it turned out that he applied not in 1913, but in 1912. And instead of making the cut, the top 150 people were selected, he actually came 702nd, so quite some way down the list. And it was only because people above him were eventually recruited and left, and then more were recruited and left, that he got in. We've got actually an extract from the records here at the National Archives. Those scores running across tell you that his handwriting wasn't bad. He got 260 out of 400. He was very good at copying manuscripts, something which would serve him well later on in his career. His English was superb, 380 out of 400. Maths, 290. Elementary maths, 230. His Latin was only 195, being a medieval historian and working with medieval documents. In Latin, most of the time, that appalls me. French, very strong in other languages, though. He got 307 out of 400, and so on. Interesting, he did not take German, another language, which perhaps would have made him very suitable to a career in the Foreign Office. Of course, 1st of April 1914 is only a few months before the outbreak of the Great War. And... Dutifully, he enlists on the 10th of December 1915, but is not drafted for active service. He returns to the Foreign Office. But once again, he applies. He wants to do his bit for King and Country, and he joins the Second Artist Rifles, that notable battalion that produced such war poet luminaries such as Wilfred Owen. So the Foreign Office grants him permission, and he goes through the Officer Training Corps and eventually receives a temporary commission as Second Lieutenant in the King's own Shropshire Light Infantry, where he's attached to the 5th Battalion on the 30th of October, 1917. This unit is disbanded a few months later, 2nd of February, after receiving heavy losses on the front, and he's moved across to the 1st Battalion. This is rather unfortunate because one of the first actions that it sees is the German Spring Offensive, and once again, they're bombarded, heavily shelled, and many men are lost, killed and wounded. (coughs) This continues. This battalion is always in the front line. And indeed, it's involved in the Hundred Days campaign towards the end of the war. Olden was at the Battle of St Quentin in Trap which was a series of German assaults after the initial um, targets were missed. So they're going over the top repeatedly, (coughs) fighting their way through in appalling weather conditions. Reading the reports in the Unit War Diary, In record, W095 1092. The weather conditions are pretty much like what we've been facing over the last few weeks. Torrential rain, thunderstorms, flooding, mud. It's a pretty apocalyptic picture. And in the middle of this, the Germans are raining heavy artillery down on the troops. He is actually caught up in an exploding shell. The concussion and the debris finds that he's buried for some time until he's eventually dug out unconscious by some of his comrades. And then he's given a first aid. And taken behind the lines into a casualty clearing station and then removed from the front line. He goes back to England where he, retrie- uh, where he receives further medical attention. He's eventually discharged as being medically fit on the 18th of November 1918, so the war is effectively finished. It also notes that he's probably one of those who would have lived through the Spanish flu. Curious postscript to his military career he applied for a post on military intelligence, the for MI5. So he was clearly interested in espionage, intelligence gathering, and potential use of language. There's this letter in support, which had been written by the Foreign Office. The application takes place in July 1918, but it is rejected, which of course sends him back into the main conflict. So he returns to civilian life. It's interesting to speculate how much his war experiences would have affected him. He was blown up. Possible shell shock. He experienced sights and with people that he probably would no other connection with back in the rarefied atmosphere of the Foreign Office. So he has to settle back down into a daily routine. And much of his working life takes place in the newly formed Communications Department had been appointed to a junior executive grade on the 1st of January 1920 and then moved to the communications department which has links to the king's messengers carrying mail to various embassies and consular posts and of course this is an important role in ciphers so that the materials that are sent out are encrypted and cipher keys are then issued so that everyone knows how to understand what's being written so security is paramount to this particular job. And we've got a flavour of some of his work, which Edward's very kindly shared with me, from the Chief Clerk's Department correspondence files in series FO366. Rather unfortunately, or possibly conveniently, depending on how you look at it, given what's to come, no records of the Communications Department per se survive between 1927 and 1935, key dates in Oldham's career. And we see here a selection of Oldham's handwriting as he writes about particular aspects of his work. The item at the top, from 1926, relates to concern raised in the department that many of the pieces of correspondence put in. The mails sent out with the King's messengers are going missing. So he's very concerned to make sure these things are secure. And on the left-hand side, even more pertinently, He's writing about the need to have secure, locked safes for some of the ciphers that are to be stored within the Foreign Office and at the various embassies. So he's expressing concern that the system isn't safe. And a nice little note right here. We have his personal signature. So you can actually understand a little bit more about a person and the way they wrote It's very sort of clipped and pointed, very much the language of the civil service of its day. There's a wonderful section in FO 366812 Realms of correspondence backwards and forwards, where he's basically saying, we could save all this for the meeting, and then goes on writing about it for a couple of months. Very much like working here. Life changes. Indeed, his entire world is turned upside down when he marries. He meets a much older and very wealthy widow named Lucy Wellstead. Now, she's got an interesting story. She's the daughter of a very rich mining magnate, Heinrich Kaiser of Germanic origin, who was based out of Australia. And she married another miner, Thomas Wellstead. He was involved with gold and was based in Tasmania. And it seemed that the family had a very jet-set lifestyle, They're rich. They're constantly moving around the world, visits into America. She seems to be on very good terms with the United States President uh, Herbert Hoover. And they have two sons together. Now both her father and her husband die in 1919, leaving her a very wealthy lady indeed. At least £20,000 comes to her. And there's a Average income of around £600 as well on top of that. So clearly she's got some money. She moves back to London and lives in a fairly good establishment. And then she meets this rather humble cipher clerk who's working in the Foreign Office. How did they meet? Well, there are some clues in the file, KB2808, which forms the basis for this talk. It claims from various discussions with Lucy and the circle of friends that she was introduced to him by a Captain Billy Everett, himself rather a shadowy figure, whom Edward's research has shown to be a Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve paymaster, and who claimed also to be a King's messenger. So possibly there's a connection there with Oldham's work in the Foreign Office. But he seems to have facilitated an introduction between the couple around about 1923 and then rather conveniently dies off a year or so later. They marry on the 27th of July, 1927. And a copy of their marriage certificate is included in the file, where it shows that they'd falsified their ages to give their marriage a dose of respectability. He claims to be 37, and she claims to be 40. In actual fact, he was 33, and she was 45. So there's quite a considerable age gap between them. And he finally leaves his family home in Berry Street, and they move into a nice new upmarket house in Pembroke Gardens, Kensington, complete with a rather wonderful Sunbeam Coupe with a chauffeur to drive them around. So, this is a complete change cocktail parties, clubs, the rich and the famous, and they're always jetting off via Imperial Airways flights from Croydon and elsewhere. So this is a complete change in lifestyle. And you just wonder whether or not this changed his outlook on life. Because something clearly happened around about this time. He marries in 1927. He gets promoted in 1928. And it's around about this time that he seems to enter the murky word of Soviet espionage. Now, a bit a background history here. After the war, there was obviously a huge amount of interest in gathering foreign intelligence. And whilst Germany was still under a great deal of surveillance, the Soviets at this stage, after the revolution and the civil war, were trying to establish themselves on the international scene pretty much from scratch. They'd been excluded from the League of Nations discussions, for example, so they felt excluded. They wanted to know what the other powers were talking about. The main Soviet intelligence agency, the Cheka, was formed in 1917 with a foreign intelligence section in Ostroznye Otdel formed in 1920 after the civil war, but in many ways the key to this story is the formation of the Joint State Political Directorate. In many ways, the Soviet secret police, the Abien Dnye Gosudarstvene Politscheskie Avravlennye which is a very garbled, poor Russian way of saying OGPU, which is what we'll refer to it from there. I did have coaching, but clearly the lessons didn't pay off. What they tried to do was establish a system of both legal and illegal operatives around European embassies. Legal operatives would be based at a Russian or Soviet institution. The illegals were in many ways a shadowy underground network who would pose as various disaffected people and try and find out a lot more from exactly the sort of person that Oldham was. Junior diplomats, civil servants, people who were involved in the foreign service. And two key players are these gentlemen here. Dmitry, uh, Dmitry Litov, and Boris Bozavrov. And these two were instrumental in reeling Oldham in. Bistroliatov has been described in many ways as a Romeo spy, a very dashing figure there. And he went by a variety of code names and aliases, Alexander Gallas, Sir Robert Glanville, Joseph Pirelli and Hans Gallini, just to name a few. His story is very interesting and worth reading in its own right. And so in many ways he was the illegal who would be used to lure people in. Whereas Bazarov was more of a bad cop, and as we'll see in this particular operation, he would often pose as a hardline Bolshevik going by the name of Da Vinci. But these were the characters operating around Europe in the 1920s and into the 1930s. And we have a variety of sources, particularly from the Soviet side, for what happened next. In 1928, the Russians had been privy to what is described as a walk-in, from someone claiming to have Italian cipher codes. It was actually a Swiss gentleman called De and he wanted to sell these Italian cipher codes to the Russians. The Russians were highly suspicious and they managed to extract some of the information. But this was a golden opportunity to get access to foreign powers and some of the keys to understanding what correspondence was floating around at that time. But they weren't actually suspicious when in 1929 another person turned up at the Paris Embassy, a man calling himself Charlie, with particularly poorly spoken French, offering British foreign office and colonial office cipher codes, asking initially for £50,000. Well, over a million and a half pounds in today's money, there or thereabouts, but also complete anonymity for the sale of these codes. The Russians eventually beat him down to about 10000 but he was highly suspicious and disappeared. And there follows a protracted game of cat-and-mouse, the Russians suspecting he may well be some form of double agent, particularly as he seemed particularly adept at giving their agents the slip as they tailed him around the streets and bars of Paris on numerous occasions. Bristolytov was asked by Bazarov to find out who Charlie was. And so he posed as rather out of luck. Hungarian count, Joseph Pirelli, who had been forced to work for the Soviets and become an informer as he wandered across Europe by da Vinci, which was, of course, Bazarov's alias. Eventually, Bristoliatov tracked Oldham down to a hotel in Paris where he had checked in under the name of E.H. Oldwell, So again, even then, he was beginning to throw people off the scent, but they were getting closer to working out who Charlie was. And they had a real stroke of luck when they started to check Oldwell against some of the names of the Foreign Office delegates who were going around Europe at this time, appearing at some of the key meetings, including the British delegation to the League of Nations and an E.H. Oldham was found in the list of these Foreign Office staff at the Hotel Beau Rivage in Geneva. Now, this hotel was noted as a bit of a hangout for disaffected civil servants, junior diplomats, drinking, all sorts of scurrilous tales being swapped in the bar afterwards between various individuals, a nest for potential spies, is how it could have been described. And this was the link that bristrelia needed to get hold of Oldham. It didn't take him much sleuthing with his agents to track Oldham back to London and locate his address in Pembroke Avenue. And so he went to visit. He turned up unexpectedly, posing as Count Pirelli, only to find that Oldham wasn't there. He'd disappeared. But his wife, Lucy, was. And rather bedazzled by this handsome count, agreed to go to lunch with uh, Tuff, and there revealed Oldham's dark secret, that actually he was an alcoholic, and he'd checked into a clinic for rehabilitation, Rendlesham Hall in Suffolk, which, again, through some of Edward's research, has shown on the surface to be a retreat, a tranquil idyll where you would go to relax and recover, but actually where there were some quite experimental treatments going on, injections and sedatives. It was quite a, a harsh regime, shall we say. And this is where Bristoliatov went next and turned up, finding Oldham having been injected with various sedatives in a virtually catatonic state. And there he pounced and made sure that Oldham knew that he was here to stay. Now, the part of the story that puzzles me, and I think quite a lot of us have looked at it, is is why, what prompted him to actually take this appalling risk to betray his country, potentially, to walk into an embassy and offer to sell state secrets for, admittedly, a fabulous amount of money When you think of his wife's background, we can only speculate that they were suffering some financial hardship, possibly lost through the crash and subsequent economic downturn, perhaps living above their means. It's hard to think that he might have drunk his way through all of it, but that is always the possibility. But from this point onwards, he now begins to live this double life. And Alden began increasingly to sell cipher codes and pass the information to the Soviets. Bistroliatov was assigned to be his handler, and Oldham was given the code Arno, A R N O, with Lucy being called Madam, which actually seems quite appropriate. She seems fairly complicit in this whole affair, and indeed quickly set out to seduce Bistroliatov herself with, and I quote from his own notes, the spirited gesture of a seaport hooker. He succumbs, but this again bound the couple to him even more closely. And Oldham increasingly used diplomatic passports, writing to various figures to secure the diplomatic leverage that he needed, including one of his colleagues, Thomas Kemp, to stand witness for him, who worked with him at the Foreign Office, and a rather shadowy figure called Holloway, who we suspect is a relation and possibly the half brother. of of Oldham's mother, who at this time would have been working or would have just left the Postmaster General's office in Rhodesia. So he's clearly someone of the establishment himself. So there's all sorts of connections there. But either way, they're travelling around the world increasingly on effectively Ogpu business. Most of these trips, which were eventually culled from some of the passenger manifests from Imperial Airways at the time, show that they were constantly going to Paris, but also other destinations as well, into <coughs> Berlin, parts of um, Holland, into Amsterdam, Geneva. So this, in many ways, was, was globetrotting, ostensibly as part of his day job. He managed to secure a variety of, of, of scoops for the Russians, possibly leaking intelligence on the British position at a League of Nations discussion um, about what the British and the German Chancellor's position should be about the French, for example, so sensitive diplomatic discussions are being leaked. He got a false passport for Bristoliatov under the name of Sir Robert Grenville. But this wasn't enough. Alderman claimed to have been representing a source, in many ways overplaying his hand, stating he was more important than he was, and so uh, the Ogpu agents were spectacularly ignorant of the workings of the Foreign Office at this time and believed him and so were pressuring him to reveal who this source was or to find other people who could work with him. This double life put Oldham under increasing strain and we see increasing frequent trips to the clinics for alcoholism and a growing nervousness in public in- in scenarios. For example, he once expressed extreme alarm when Bristoliatov failed to stand for the playing of God Save the King during a trip they took to the cinema for fear he might be pointed at as a foreign spy and again some of the work that Edward's done into the day books in the Foreign Office FO1103 begin to trace Oldham's increasing absences from work, long periods, he's often spending more time away from work than actually there fulfilling his duties and this with a growing alarm about his lack of attention to detail, the fact for example that he takes home and then loses confidential papers, leads the foreign office to take the rather dramatic step of dismissing him from post in November 1932, and even more ominously, not giving him a pension, which was often a sign that they were highly suspicious of what their staff were up to. This prompted a real fear of exposure, and with it, a concern from all sides that Oldham was about to mentally collapse. Yet, despite all of these suspicions that the Foreign Office officials were starting to gather, there was no official charge made against him. And even more remarkably, he was allowed to leave his possessions in a locked trunk in the Foreign Office at Whitehall. And he would frequently use this as a pretext to make recurring visits to visit staff and obviously to get as much material as he could. But the pressure continued to ratchet up. The Ocfio agents were not going to let him go. They were pushing harder and harder often threatened to cut off his financial lifeline. No job. Looks like his wife's money has all disappeared. This is the only source of revenue that he's got. He's now on a pension, effectively, of £1,000 a month to keep him going. And so he made one last desperate attempt to break in and steal some of the key ciphers that were locked within Room 5 in the Foreign Office. And on the 13th of July, he took an impression of the cipher room key with a waxy substance, whilst distracting various members of staff there, and made a run for it. And this, of course, got the alarms bells ringing finally. And all the staff on duty that night were then interviewed, trying to work out what had happened. This is uh, one of his colleagues, an assistant clerk, uh, Binden, who states, you know, when he came into the building, first of all, in his usual manner, he is not a particularly healthy-looking man. He explained a mark on his nose and dark marks under his eyes as being due to a fall from a horse Yes, as we all do, uh, saying he had run into a tree. Personally, I doubt it. He was quite sober, etc. I thought to myself, guilty conscience. So the alarm bells are ringing and suspicions are now being raised at the highest level that Oldham had actually been somehow selling secrets to a foreign power, (coughs) as yet unknown. And so the Department of Public Prosecutions are brought in. And the director starts to discuss with key Foreign Office staff, including Head of Service, Sir Robert Vansittart, what to do about the security breach. Should we arrest him under the Official Secrets Act or interrogate him and just see what he's actually found out and passed on? And their decision is really quite stunning. We'll do nothing. We'll do nothing. Mainly because it may actually cause us a little bit of embarrassment However, Oldham was actually placed under surveillance. Now, these are, this is top-secret material that's being handed out at a time when there's starting to be a growing awareness that something isn't right, that secrets <coughs> are being passed out. There have been a number of Soviet defections And newspaper reports were starting to surface, certainly on the continent, that something had happened around about 1929. That information had actually been leaked from the British cipher department. But even despite these warning signs, there wasn't that, let's round him up and keep him. So he's placed under surveillance. He promptly checks back into a clinic and the strain now breaks the couple. And this is one of those sad moments where there's a little bit of paper stuck inside a document that actually reveals the human cost of what is going on. Not only was he monitored, but his phones were intercepted. And this is a phone call made just six days after his desperate attempt to get information between Oldham on the left and Lucy, his wife, on the right. Is that you, Lucy? Yes. Ernest speaking, can you bring me some handkerchiefs, socks and pyjamas? Yes. Joe is here, i.e. Joe Pirelli. I hear Kemp has been. What for? What's that to do with you? I suppose you told him everything. No, I didn't, but it's about time I did. How long are you staying there in the clinic? Not much longer. Well, you won't find me here. I'm finished. You've done nothing for me. Oh, yes, I have. I will get Joe down if you'd like and ask him. I've waited and you've done nothing. I have finished. Goodbye. That is the moment when Lucy leaves her husband recorded in a Secret Service file. An intimate moment between husband and wife is laid bare for all to see. The surveillance becomes more and more intense. Kemp had been to the house because he'd been asked by his superiors to investigate. So instead of bringing in the Secret Service and the an intelligent officer at this point, the Foreign Office conduct their own fairly amateurish internal series of investigations. And Kemp, who has been Oldham's friend for quite some time, goes rounds to meet Lucy and Pirelli, of course, to see what's going on. And Kemp raises his fears for the first time that Oldham might have been spying. Ostrolikov steers him between, towards a potentially German link to throw him off the trail for the Russians, arranges to meet Kemp the next day then flees the country. Oldham leaves as well. And then he comes back And having been thrown out of his marital home, he takes up residence in the Jules Hotel in German Street. But he spends most of his time, by all accounts, in the Chequers pub, drinking heavily. And in August, MI5 agents are sent to see what they can discover. So they're monitoring him, and now they decide on direct intervention. And the 26th of August, they concoct an elaborate sting operation which was basically to go to the Chequers pub, have a conversation and fall into conversation with Oldham and get him very drunk indeed. And this is the written report of that mission. Oldham appeared to have an enormous capacity for drink and after about half an hour was showing signs of drunkenness whereupon more refreshment was ordered and Captain Boddington decided it was about time that he left. So they go back to Oldham's hotel and he puts him into his room After about ten minutes I find myself undressing Oldham and putting him into bed because he was in an absolutely incapable condition. I covered him up with the bedclothes and decided that the time had come when I should search his belongings. So they go through and find a whole range of addresses and correspondence and bits and pieces which again brings the um, investigation a bit further forward. The next morning, August was 3.7th, I called in on Oldham to see how he was. He was still in bed and in a dilapidated condition, but clearly the net is tightening around him. And surveillance continues, and we have this one last report on file where we understand a bit more about how low Oldham has sunk to. Each night on leaving the checkers, he visits Grays, the chemist of Duke Street, where Jock, a local character has ready for him a concoction for sleeplessness. So he's into drugs as well. He usually leaves a jock a bottle of beer. In my opinion, Oldham is rapidly heading for a breakdown. That report was filed on the 21st of September 1927. Sorry, 1933. On the 27th of September, he disappears from surveillance. So attempts were made to find him. I called in at the Chequers public house and learned that the above had not been there since Wednesday the 27th. he had previously been in the house on each evening. Attached cutting may explain his absence. That report was filed on the 30th of September. And the cutting is an extract from the Star newspaper dated the day before. Unknown man dead in gas-filled empty kitchen who was wearing a shirt with the initials E-H-O. The house was his former marital address in Kensington. And tragically, it looks like he had gone home, possibly drunk, and killed himself. The report continues, I've since ascertained that the deceased referred to his olden and that he was in monetary difficulties. On the Monday prior to his death, he is said to have received a letter from Geneva, the contents of which appeared to upset him he is stated to have been taking in large quantities of a a drug, viraldehyde. Now, this is really intriguing. What is that letter from Geneva? Well, again, we can only speculate. We do have some evidence from the Soviet side that it may be that there was being pressure brought to bear on him that unless he revealed his source or delivered more information, he would be cut off. And that, with all of his debts and the collapse of his marriage, could well have tipped him over the edge. But it's really interesting to read some of the Ogpu accounts Because they suspected that the British had killed him to stop him selling any more secrets and to avoid a dreadful scandal. Whilst the British were beginning to wonder whether or not the Russians or someone else had killed him. So there is an element of mystery about the fate of Ernest Oldham. But what is known is that the coroner's report makes very clear the cause of death. Drink and drugs led to his downfall. So this was a public story which, in many ways, had been covered up. The full implications weren't really realised at the time. Once Oldham's death had been announced, the repercussions started. Kemp and officials from the Foreign Office rounded on Lucy. They wanted to find out what she knew and whether she had been complicit in this potential espionage. But Kemp himself and his amateur sleuthing was also seen as highly unconvincing by the Foreign Office, and he too was interviewed, possibly through some of his connections. But nothing was done. No real attempt was made to find out the extent of the security breach and what secrets could well have been lost. And it took a string of Russian defectors In the late 1930s, after the Stalinist purges, and the 1940s, people like Walter Kravitsky, Alexander Orlov, Slutsky, before MO5 finally began to realise that this might have been a major incident that had happened right under their noses, which they would ignored. And defector after defector stated that this was this key figure who had been passing secrets across. The case was eventually picked up again in 1950, because with these growing concerns that a major breach had taken place, they wanted to find all the people who had been involved at that time. So Kemp was brought back in and interviewed once more. But a concerted effort was made to find Lucy Wellstead. At this time, she was living just down the road in Richmond. And when police started sniffing around on behalf of the intelligence services, on the 26th of June, 1950... She drove her car into the Thames and also committed suicide. Officially, financial problems were said to be the cause of her demise. And in many ways, it was only in the 1970s, Operation Fluency, for example, part of the longer-term assessments of increasing numbers of Soviet agents, the Cambridge Spiring, for example, that the chain of culpability started to be put together and linked back to the activities of Oldham in the early 1930s. One of his last tasks, apart from breaking in and trying to get cipher access, was to hand over names of various individuals who might also act as Soviet operatives. John, Henry, uh, John Herbert King, for example. And in many ways, a lot of the impact of the Cold War can be <coughs> placed right at Oldham's door. There he is. Great Uncle Ernest, because that's the connection. That story I told you at the very beginning, when my grandparents rushed out without warning, without explanation. Well, Oldham's sister was Marjorie, and she had married my grandfather. So actually, that was the explanation for why my uncle was forced to go and walk to an isolation hospital and find out what had happened to his brother, because that morning, the family had been alerted to the fact that Ernest Holloway Oldham had died. And the ramifications started at a personal level. So I feel a very interesting kinship with this individual. It's very hard to know quite how to consider him. At various stages of his career, he's very different people. On the one hand, he could be seen as a war hero. Goes off to fight for king and country, gets blown up, comes back. A changed man, according to family story. Someone who marries someone who may not be that suitable for him. Who leads him to a new lifestyle? There's something uncertain about Lucy Wellstead that I think needs further investigation. What was her role in encouraging him to go to the Russians? How much did she lead him? And how much was he the willing accomplice? But then you have the weak willed man who did sell secrets, who turned to drink, and was ultimately broken by his own mistakes. Do we feel sorrow or pity? Or do we actually blame him for what could be many other deaths as a result of his espionage in the 1930s when you start to escalate that on over the years and over the decades? It's a very intriguing conundrum and I think we've only just begun to scratch the surface of not just people like Ernest Holloway Oldham but a variety of others who are in these wonderful files in KV2. Which have been digitized and should be appearing online from April onwards.: This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright of the National Archives. All rights reserved.